The scripture reading for this morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, and you'll be able to find that on page 1,203 of your pew Bible, page 1203. Here we read, then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, Jesus, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me. For I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And here we come to the text, and we'll be focusing on the full parable, but most especially on the first half of this parable, verses 11 to 24. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and, sent, and he sent him to his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And then he rose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, 
And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost, and is found. The Word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the parable of the prodigal son is probably one of the most well-known parables in the Western world today. It's even let the word prodigal survive and thrive in common English as a person who has wandered away from home and lived life recklessly. But when we come to this parable, we have to take a moment to think. Who is this parable actually about? Is it first and foremost about the prodigal son? Consider who Jesus is talking to for a moment. The context is plain. Jesus Christ has just been invited to a Sabbath meal. And if you'll open to Luke 14 for a moment, you'll be able to see that right at the beginning there. He went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, and they watched him closely. As a well-known and well-loved rabbi, it would have been a status symbol to have Jesus present, at least for now, because he has not made an enemy of all the Pharisees just yet. Consider Luke 13, verse 31 for a moment, just prior to this. Some Pharisees even warn him that Herod wanted to kill him. Yet, there were some among the Pharisees, and so we can see, there were some among the Pharisees who were looking out for him. Now, it would have been a special bonus for this Pharisee who had invited him to his home. Because there were crowds pushing in and wanting to get a glimpse of Jesus and hear him speak. To have all of these people crowding in, looking in the windows, trying to see what was going on would have been a boost of status for this man. The problem is that the moment Jesus enters into a room, he can immediately see the hearts of those who are within it. He can immediately see the hypocrisy that can be found there. And he's not afraid to point it out. The very first thing that he does at this party, at the beginning of chapter 14, the very first thing that he does at this party is see a man who is suffering from dropsy. This is excess water buildup in your system causing swelling. And he asks the people there, the Pharisees there, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He knows they don't approve of healing on the Sabbath. He knows this is a sticking point for them. But he wants to call them out on it, exposing the wrongness of the fact that they think healing this man on the Sabbath day is sinful. They say nothing, and so Jesus heals this man, the first 
action he takes at this Sabbath meal. Having done that, he begins to watch the guests as they are being ushered in. Seeing how they choose the best places, he uses this as a teaching moment, telling them that they are wrong to choose the best places, and that whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is a theme for Jesus' ministry, and so it's no surprise that he talks about it, but for the Pharisees and scribes who have taken those seats of honor and who are reclining there, this is terribly embarrassing. In the moment of silence that follows, he calls out his hosts. Seeing all of the friends, the relatives, and rich and prominent neighbors who have been invited, Jesus says to his host, when you give a dinner or supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers or your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you will be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Someone reclining at the table with him hears this and clues into the fact that he's talking about the kingdom of God. And while there might be embarrassment elsewhere, this man calls out in approval. Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus goes on to tell a brief parable of who will actually enter the kingdom of God. And in doing so, he hints that they are so caught up, all of these guests here and all the Pharisees here are so caught up in their worldly pursuits that if they don't watch out, they will not be invited to eat bread in the kingdom of God. In fact, those unwashed, uninvited masses who are standing right outside of the door, pressing in to see, they will be invited there before him. Having dismissed all of the guests who are around him so easily, he turns around to those very same crowds who, follows, who followed him in and begins to preach to them. What an embarrassing situation all around for the host and for the guests. They had likely brought Jesus in to be a curiosity at their feast. Someone they, as the elite members of society, could look at and talk with at this private dinner party. It says they were watching him carefully. So they were probably trying to uh, suss out a little bit what kind of man this Jesus was. What kind of teacher he was and what kind of things he was going to teach. But here he is, having left them all behind, and he's talking to the crowds who hadn't even been invited. Seeing that there are even tax collectors and those who are known to be, by the community, great sinners among those crowds, the Pharisees complain. They are embarrassed, and they seize this moment to voice their complaint. They think it's inappropriate for Jesus to be around people like that. But then Jesus reaches the point that he was leading up to for this entire meal. You see, Jesus wasn't just pointlessly provoking these people. He wasn't trying to get quick and easy laughs from the crowd that was around. He loved these Pharisees too. And even when he rebuked them sharply, it was out of love for them as members of the people of God. He wanted to correct them, to guide them. What Jesus was doing here was teaching them a lesson. 
And it was a two-part lesson. We will deal with the first part today and the second part, Lord willing, next week with regards to the other son. We'll see Jesus introduces us to the prodigal son. First of all, he's desperately lost apart from his father. Second, he experiences the hunger of a life without his father. And third, he receives overwhelming forgiveness from his father. Before he wades into the parable of the prodigal son in earnest, Jesus sets this up by talking about loss with the Pharisees. He begins, Which man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it, he asks. Now, apart from the slightly silly picture of Pharisees and scribes, these academic types being staff-carrying, burly shepherds, they can appreciate the image. To have a hundred sheep would have been seen as a picture of wealth, and they wouldn't want to lose a single one. But more than that, they could appreciate it in terms of a word picture too. The leaders of Israel were often talked about as shepherds. So they can at least track where Jesus is going a little bit as soon as he begins to apply it spiritually. He goes on, when he is found, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. And then he comes to the main point. I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who, just persons who need no repentance. Ah, okay. Lost and found. They can understand that. Jesus goes on. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, doesn't light a lamp, sweep the house and then search carefully until she finds it. A silver coin, by the way, was an average day's wage. In her culture, where you often live from day to day, ten silver coins was probably her life savings, and so losing one was a huge deal. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, I've found the piece which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Lost and found again. But these are all things that the Pharisees know, in theory. They can appreciate the fact that God rejoices over sinners who repent. But how bad is that sin allowed to be? Then Jesus introduces us to the first son. A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of the goods that falls to me. Father, give me my inheritance. Immediately a sense of anger fills the air. This son says, Dad, you're not dying fast enough and I can't wait for you to kick the bucket. Give me my inheritance. I'm out of here. The entire crowd would be horrified and angry to hear these words. If you know anything about how the father was regarded in the ancient Near East, how he was held in this venerated and honored position, then you would know that you simply don't do this in that culture. You don't do it in our culture today. 
It's seen as disrespectful in our culture today, but it's especially true back then. It was shockingly disrespectful. This son is desperately lost. He hasn't even left home yet, and he's desperately lost. Jesus has spoken about the lost sheep, and he had spoken about the lost coin, and the Pharisees were tracking as far as that was concerned. It's only natural to pursue a lost sheep or a lost coin. Both are valuable. Both are precious. They understand that forgiveness and redemption are things that God offers to lost sinners. They understand, in theory, that humans are precious. We know this too, in theory. But when it's put into pictures of real-life hurt, real-life pain, and real-life consequences. Can we handle it? Sin breaks down relationships, sometimes slowly, but sometimes it just burns them down to the ground in one shot. And in situations like that, we are so often filled with grief and with rage. Those consequences, those impacts that they have on people around you in the world are real. They're very real. They grieve God. And they grieve those around you in your life. That is not something you take lightly. But notice what else this young man is telling his father. He's not saying, I value money more than I value you. Not only saying that. He's telling him, life isn't right with you in control. Life cannot be right unless I'm allowed to indulge, in my own, indulge my own sin. I want to be allowed to do what I want, when I want. And I don't appreciate you sticking your nose into my business. This is a lot closer to home for us, isn't it? You young people, when was the last time you thought this about your parents? Maybe not in so many words. You may not have asked them to give you your share of the inheritance, but have you squirmed under the control of your parents, even when you knew that they were doing something out of love for you? You know, as parents, that everything is, hopefully, done out of love for you. Or for the rest of us, How often haven't we desired to satisfy ourselves outside of our Heavenly Father's boundaries? Think back to this past week. Have you had a moment when you wished that God would just turn His gaze aside for a moment? Thinking back now, do you have a moment in time when you felt your conscience twinge as you were involved in something and you decided to go ahead anyways? That you wished God wasn't looking at that point in time? You see, when you wish that God would turn aside for a moment or you are ashamed that you are doing something but push through with it anyways, you are expressing a desire for riches apart from your Father. You are looking for something to satisfy you that is outside of what He offers you. You are looking for more than He gives you. Praise God when we are quickly brought to our knees in repentance if these thoughts arise in our hearts. But what happens 
when we aren't, when we don't humble ourselves before the Lord, what will happen if we remain hard-hearted? This brings us to a second point. Having taken his wealth and riches in the form of something that's a bit more portable, the young man journeys to a faraway country to waste his possessions in prodigal living. This is another point that would have been shocking to the Jews of Jesus' day. An Israelite leaving the land of his inheritance? An Israelite leaving the symbol of God's covenant faithfulness? The land was a symbol of God's promises. We read in Ezekiel 46, verse 18, that not even a prince of the Israelites was allowed to lay claim to someone's land by evicting them. Because God had promised his people that land. That was the reason behind it. They were tied to that land. And to reject that land was to reject the promise of God. That is one of the reasons why many believe that in the book of Ruth, when the main characters at the beginning, Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons, left to go to Moab, they perished. Many commentators considered that the death of Elimelech and his two sons are the punishment of God for leaving the promised land even though the land of Israel was suffering under a drought as God's punishment for idolatry at that point in time. But this young man, he doesn't care, and he goes ahead anyways. Living a chosen life of an exile, he parties it up. He spends time with prostitutes, parties, and sinners, and he wasted all the money he had in wild living, And yet he was not able to find any lasting satisfaction in that. In short, he experienced the hunger of a life without his father. He thought that having come out from under the yoke of his father's rule, he would enjoy peace and satisfaction. He thought he could finally find what he's looking for. But beloved, if you go looking for satisfaction outside of your heavenly father, you will have a hunger that follows you, that hounds you. Drugs, money, women, alcohol. You'll always need more. There won't be a one last time and then I'll have enough. One last time and then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll feel complete. No, it's only momentarily filling a hole in your life. You will have a hole within yourself that nothing can satisfy. It's as the early church father Augustine once wrote, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. As is quite often the case with prodigal sons, this pursuit of pleasure outside of the house and the protection of his heavenly father does not end well. A famine hits the land that he's living in and that prodigal son is dragged down into shameful poverty. Now that's not to say that all poverty is shameful. Not at all. But what is shameful about this young man's poverty is what he's forced to do. Sometimes people need to be brought to their lowest point before they can come to their senses. And when they themselves think that they are at their lowest point, they aren't always there. But this young man has hit his lowest point. He's hit the lowest point, the lowest possible point that a Jew can hit. 
He's joined himself to someone from that land, it says. Now, you weren't supposed to interact with people on such, with Gentiles on such an intimate level. If you take, for example, the relationship between uh, Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus comes to her and he asks her for a drink of water. And she says, this isn't normal behavior. A Jew asking me, a Samaritan, for something to drink. Now, there was special animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, but you can see the pattern that follows there. You don't join yourself with these people. But even worse than that, even worse than that for a Jew, he is sent to tend swine. He's sent to tend pigs. Pigs were unclean animals for them. And for the audience of Jesus, for this young man to be working with pigs is absolutely unthinkable. He would be despised and looked down on with disgust because he was doing something beyond what anyone else in Israel would accept. And we can especially see this disgust mirrored in the Gentiles around in verse 16 in this foreign land, where we read his hunger was so great that he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swines ate. But no one gave him anything. There were ways in which the poor, even in the lands around Israel, could have found a bit of help through the pity of those who were better off. But who has pity on those who have thrown everything that they had away through their own lifestyle? They knew that he was there through his own fault and no one gave him anything. And it's here, in the midst of his physical hunger, that he's made aware of the true hunger that lies within him. How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and more to spare, and I perish with hunger, he says. And then he wakes up to the fact that he has sinned against heaven and against his father. More than that, he wakes up to the generosity and love of his father's house, even to hired servants. Here he is comparing his own position as a hired servant, caring for this man's swine. And he sees how good he actually had it in his father's home in a comparable position. He wakes up to the fact that outside of the protective influence of his father, which he left of his own choice, he won't find that true satisfaction, fulfillment, or rest that he seeks. But as his eyes turn back to his father's house, and he at the same time turns in repentance to his God in this parable, the people around Jesus are irresistibly drawn to the conclusion that Jesus draws. Not just the Pharisees, to whom this parable is directed. He is first and foremost speaking to the Pharisees here. But first and foremost, the tax collectors and sinners who have pressed in to be able to hear what Jesus says. For them, the words of Jesus are an echo of the words you can find in Old Testament passages like Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 3. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. 
and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live. To them, this is not just a promise for those who are righteous, those who do good, and those who have their lives in order. This is even a promise for those who have wandered, those who have wept and broken down, those who have rejected God, those who have starved in spiritual wastelands far from God and are only now turning to Him in repentance. The tax collectors and the sinners are waiting in bated breath to see, does this promise and promises that we find like it in the Old Testament, does that apply to me? Jesus is setting them up for a major theme that we see in the Gospel of Luke, in the ministry of Jesus. One of inclusion and reversals. Those who were lost can experience God's grace. Those who are high will be humbled. Those who reject God's grace will be brought low. But those who turn to Him in repentance and faith have the free offer of the gospel of grace extended even to them. Now you may not see yourself in the same position as this young man. In fact, I dare say that most of us haven't experienced hitting rock bottom to the same extent that this man has. But do you see the principle that's being drawn out here? It's sheer grace that this young man has his eyes open to his sin. And it's by grace that he's brought to the realization of what a blessing everything that he formerly despised really was. Is that a blessing that you are aware of? Do you see how much your Heavenly Father has given you here, sitting in the pew today, looking around you at your fellow brothers and sisters, hearing the grace of the gospel preached to you week after week, about salvation through Jesus Christ, enjoying the many rich blessings that God pours out on you and on your family. Do you see how much your Heavenly Father has given you within His kingdom? Does this bring you to a humble repentance and thankful praise each and every day before your God and Father in heaven? This brings us to our third point. Having been extended the amazing grace of having his eyes opened to his situation and having the hunger of his soul revealed to him, the young man prepares to head for home. Why live in this squalor, surrounded by unclean animals, with a barrier between him and his earthly father and a barrier between him and his heavenly father? No, he'll go home. He will go home and he'll throw himself on the mercy of his father. He's owed nothing. He can expect nothing. The portion of the inheritance that was his has been squandered. But still, in his mind, it's better for him to be a servant in his father's house than to be celebrating elsewhere or even serving up dinner to pigs anywhere else. And so he heads back home. As he makes his plans, he says to himself, I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. 
This is true repentance. The recognition that your sin has caused you to forfeit your right to any grace and to any blessing. The recognition that your sin has caused you to forfeit your right to any grace and to any blessing. And casting yourself on the mercy of God, praying for the privilege to be accepted in even the least of the positions of his kingdom, not for your own sake, but on the basis of his mercy. Having sinned, you don't come back with a list of demands. You don't pull out a list of grievances that pushed you to this point. You don't see this young man trying to persuade his father by telling him of everything that he had done as being a poor father over the years that shaped him into the kind of young man that would leave his father to spend his, life, his money recklessly. That's so often what we have today. There are reasons for what I did. Oh, I did this. I, I hurt these people. I hurt my family. I, I, I hurt my spouse. But there were reasons for it. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for what I did. But look at these reasons for it. You don't see this young man trying to persuade his father by telling him of everything he's done over the years that shaped him into being this way. No, he humbles himself. He owns his sin completely. He acknowledges that he is unworthy and he prays that his father would accept him even as a servant, as long as he is able to have the privilege of living under the same roof as his father. Sounds familiar, doesn't it, in the book of Psalms? It's better to be a servant in the doorway of, our of God's house than to live among the wicked. And what happens in response to such humbling himself. We read, he rose and he came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and he had compassion and he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. What a sign of grace and love. He was still a great way off, we read. It's clear that his father was looking down the road watching for his son every day. He runs while his son is still at a distance. And he throws his arms around him. The Greek word translated as he fell on his neck gives the picture of a father wrapping his son up in the tightest of hugs. He doesn't let his son walk up to him Walk down the road while he's watching him from a distance. He doesn't simply acknowledge his presence. He doesn't hold his son who's dressed in rags instead of the riches he left in and likely stinks like a pig at a distance. No, he embraces him. And this, teaches Jesus, is a picture of how God deals with his wayward children. Notice what happens here. First, we see a parallel that happens between the son and his father. His father who is looking out for him. His father who runs to him. 
and what we find throughout Scripture, most especially in Isaiah 65, verse 24 here. Before they call, I will answer. This young man wasn't even able to get the words out before his father embraced him. And God teaches us that this is the same way that he deals with us. He isn't just appeased by the prayer of the sinner, but he comes to meet us. As David the psalmist prays in Psalm 32 verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We wouldn't even be able to turn back if not for him reaching out to us first. Our expression of repentance, of true repentance, is a sign that God has already embraced us and is in the process of bringing us back to himself. When we do truly repent, there is nothing holding him back from welcoming us home. The people that Jesus told the parable to knew this in a small way. Jesus had set them to understand it already in a small way with those first two parables, the sheep and the coins, leading up to this one. But it's in seeing the reality of the destructiveness of sin, in seeing the pain and the suffering caused, described in vivid detail in this parable by our Lord, and in seeing the completeness of this young man's downfall, and the restoration of this young man that Jesus made clear the grace with which God reacts to truly repentant sinners. Not only is this son embraced by his father, but he's restored to his position as a son of the family. His father could have cut him off. He could have rejected him for all the grief that he had caused, but he gave him a robe and a ring all of the symbols of sonship restored, and there was rejoicing. Beloved, this is the kind of God you have. There is rejoicing from heaven when you repent. Not explaining why you got to where you are today, but true repentance, bowing your head to heaven, and owning up to your sin, there is rejoicing. Beloved, this is the kind of God you have. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees in particular right now, but the sinners and tax collectors would have been hearing, would have been listening as well. And to them, this was good news. This was gospel news. Is this the news that you receive today? You have sinned, but look to him in repentance and faith, and God will forgive you for the sake of Jesus Christ, his son. And it is his son himself that declares that news through his word today. Repent and humble yourself. And when a brother or sister in Christ returns after a time of wandering in true repentance of heart, Welcome them and restore them to fellowship among yourselves with joy. Because there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, over yourself or over anybody else.
than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Rejoice with the angels in heaven. Amen.